everybody. Today's episode is going to be focused on responding to some arguments and questions that I got in regards to an Instagram post from an atheist perspective. Phil and I are going to respond to some of those arguments and questions. I hope that Christians find it encouraging and thought-provoking in how to engage with people who um, profess to be atheists. And I hope for the self-professed atheist that it really does put you in a quandary. It makes you stop and think about who you really are and who God actually is. So without further ado, here's our discussion. So we're going to discuss some questions that a friend of mine posted on a video. And there are more like arguments. Okay, so arguments to a video I posted. So some background on the video. The video was about having to give an account for your morality. So essentially what I said is that there's not a problem with saying that atheists are moral or that they have moral virtues, but that they can't give an account for their morality. And so that kind of prompted a series of um, questions from a friend. And I said, he actually had a lot of questions and a lot of, I don't know if it was concerns or just but like thoughts and ponderings, musings, whatever, yeah, whatever you want to say. And I said, well, this is going to take, basically it was going to take a long time to try to explain in text. So we said, okay, let's just record a response to these questions because I think that they are questions and thoughts that a lot of people have and yeah. um, that are not answered often. And the reason for this is that most people, well, mo most people and us included would struggle to communicate what we wanted to in the way we wanted to in words. It would take lots of time and edits. And so being able to communicate in video with hearing the tone of our voices, it just takes away the uh, many potentials for misunderstandings. And we may still be misunderstood because we're not experts in everything that we're going to talk about, but we have thought about it. We've chatted back and forth. And so we'll do well, our and, best and to elucidate that, these points. I mean, and more than just talked with each other, we've talked with a lot of people about it yeah. and done reading and done list, a lot of listening on these topics. So I appreciate the questions that were asked because they've been questions on my mind before. And so I was thankful that someone would ask someone who disagreed with them uh, about these things instead of just, you know, maintain those assumptions in their mind. Yeah. So, okay. So here was, I think this was the first comment. The comment was, why does someone need to give an account for the morality? If it is as innate as you're describing, then shouldn't you be applauding moral atheists that haven't had the extensive teaching of the Bible you have? If you are taking the Bible as the word of God and everything it contains is truth and moral, and that's your measuring stick, then you honestly aren't that great of a person. It's a pretty dated and gruesome book. How do you give an account to morally... That's uh, maybe to morality with a measuring stick that has such inconsistencies and quote changes in interpretations. Aren't women not supposed to be teaching? Do you struggle with having a voice morally because the Bible is directly against it? And he cites Timothy two twelve. 
Uh, this might seem like an annoying comment and it probably is, but I'm legitimately curious how you decide to pick and choose what to take as fact and the word of God and what you don't. Sounds a lot like secular morality and how atheists make decisions around what we think is moral. So let's look at the first one. That was long. So it says, why, why does someone need to give an account for their morality? And I want to say the reason you have to give an account for your morality is because if you don't have to, then you are the accounting. And so if someone asks me, you know, why do you think A, B, and C? And, and it's about why I say something's bad or good or right or wrong or virtuous or not virtuous. My standard is the Bible because the Bible says, because God says it is right or wrong or good or bad. And so if someone comes to me and they say, well, I don't really have to give an accounting for my morality, then by virtue of saying that you are the standard for that morality, you have chosen what's good and bad and right and wrong and virtuous or not virtuous. So you are your own God. You are your own um, standard. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It, the, the way that the idea was posed at first confused me because when someone says you have to give an account for, I'm thinking about like me in front of a judge at traffic court saying, give an account for why you are speeding. And it's explaining the reasoning. And so if you say someone said, give an account for your morality, you're like, well, give an account for why you did what you did. But what we're really saying is give an account for by what standard you judge something to be moral or immoral. Right. To what authority are you authority or fact or system or something, are you appealing to say these are universal moral principles that apply everywhere? Because as soon as you go into, well, it's subjective, we decide this morality based on consensus, well, that's a that's kind of a scary thought that the majority, what, what kind of consensus? Does it take a just a bare majority, 51% of 100 people to decide what's moral in terms of killing or stealing from the other 49 does it take more consensus how do you decide well by what standard do you even decide in terms of a consensus morality how much consensus does it take um so i mean i could see if you were talking about consensus broadly the idea of getting a hundred percent of people to agree on anything it's very difficult so you could you could get sort of lost very quickly yeah yeah. Did you have anything else that you want? Well, I think that I, I've talked to many people who don't believe in God or who subscribe to other religions or systems of, of faith or philosophies. And like this guy said, we really do believe that a sense of morality, a sense of what ought to be is written in people's hearts. That's what the Bible teaches because we're made in God's image there that that comes with certain characteristics or attributes about us and one of those things is that we have a sense of what ought to be what ought not to be a sense of what is fair and what's not fair and we really drill down on those things and so just because we believe that everyone has it doesn't mean that the what did he say it was something about he was like judging that, well, we, we believe that everybody has that sense. So it's not praiseworthy. Oh, innate. You said if, innate. It, if it is as innate as you're describing, then shouldn't you be applauding moral atheists that haven't had the extensive teaching of the Bible you have? 
Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, wh why would you applaud somebody for something that's innate, right? It's, and, it's and they didn't work at it. They didn't think deeply about it. It's just innate. Well, also, I, I mean, I don't know how you think about this, but anyone that says this, all that comes to mind is cosmic plagiarism. You are stealing from God the morality that he's established, that he says good is right and he's written on your hearts, but you're denying giving credit or reference to him, yeah. citing him in any way, saying, I do not need him to account for this. But in actuality, you do. Yeah. You do need him to account for it. Yeah, so if we take a heinous crime like murder, for instance, well, if you are an atheist and you have a humanistic philosophy, then we're really nothing more than a sack of skin full of chemical reactions. Some people even believe in complete determinism where we don't even really have a will the chemical reactions and the, the quantum things going on in our head with synapses firing and what's going on at the cellular and molecular level determines what we do not our own wills or determines our wills and so at that point there's no not, nothing praiseworthy and if we are just a sack of skin full of chemical reactions we come from nothing, the universe came from nothing, it's going towards nothing in entropy. So how could anything possibly matter? And you're left with complete subjectivism. So the universe is, uh, it's an impersonal force. The, the universe or science or whatever doesn't care if we live or die. What does it matter if someone lives to the ripe old age of 90 or if they're brutally murdered by someone like is there anything it was there's all a nothing part there of, it's it's all a part of how it was constructed yeah. or but we know like intuitively innately we know that all human life is precious that we should protect it that murder is wrong it's it's fairly i mean it's not a hundred percent universal among all cultures everywhere but it's it's a pretty universal moral principle. Thou shalt not murder, which is the sixth commandment in, in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. So what does it say that that is what we believe, but how do you give an account? How do you justify how you came to that conclusion? Because if you can't justify it, then how do you punish or discipline or judge or, or do anything to someone who commits it if there's no standard by which to judge them. Mm -hmm. If it's just, oh, we all agree that it's wrong, well, yeah, it's just not good enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's good enough to work pragmatically, but it's not good enough if you're trying to build a cogent worldview around it. You need something deeper. Yeah. I mean, what really is restraining the hearts of men from doing that? If, if you're just looking from a humanistic evolutionary standpoint, then you are looking out for your own best interest or the interest of like your family, your progeny, right? Mm -hmm. And if, if in your calculation you've, you have determined that it is better for your people and for you to kill or to murder someone, what is restraining you from doing that? If there's no higher, higher moral standard, if there's nothing that you anchor yourself on besides the deterrents that are built into law, right? What's to actually tell you that that is 
egregious or not. Yeah. So when he uses the word, so in this, he uses the words, it's a pretty dated and gruesome book. And so again, I would ask, by what standard is it gruesome? Like what makes you kind of, you know, shiver or shake when you read some parts of the Old Testament? What What is it that you base it being good or bad or virtuous on? It It, it is just inconsistent. Yeah. Well, and most people don't really have a problem with gruesome. People are more than happy to watch. Many people are more than happy to watch horror movies. They watch you know, a show like Game of Thrones that has gruesome betrayals, graphic sex scenes, murder, mayhem. And it's, it's actually entertainment to them. So... Right. It, and one of the reasons why people are so entertained by it is that it mirrors real life more than a sitcom yes a sitcom or a fantasy like high fantasy that the the good guy you know they're gonna win you know exactly who's good exactly who's bad and there's there's just no there's no mystery there's no surprise to it so i mean i get why someone might be entertained by that in in the sense that it's unpredictable um, but entertained by gruesome things in particular, you know, by my moral standards that I get from the Bible, that would probably not be the, well, that would definitely not be the kind of thing you would want to fill your mind with as entertainment. Yeah. But we are using the Bible as our mm -hmm. standard. Yeah. So he had gone into saying, aren't we, there's some things in here that, well, let me, uh, to let me his say credit. a couple other things too. Okay, okay. So in terms of gruesome people, can sometimes read passages of scripture, chapters, verses, or whatever, divorce them from their context, and they take something that is narrative and they interpret it or they they yeah. they ascribe to Christians that we believe it's prescriptive. So, for instance, God told the his his chosen people to go into the land of Canaan and conquer and slaughter all the people. Or kill all the people and take their land right and so that was a command given to a specific people at a specific time for a specific task and as specific judgment for the sins of those people those people were involved in wicked wickedness weird deviant ungodly sexual practices in child sacrifice and things like that and so it was judgment on those people that God did, that God commanded them to do what he did. Now, I understand that that would offend certain people's sensibilities, but insofar as you don't understand God's holiness and how wicked and, and terrible our sin is as humans, especially sins like sacrificing live children in the fire to Moloch, you know, insofar as you don't understand or are unwilling to admit how wicked that is, you will have a problem with God's judgment in that respect. But that command at that time to that specific people for that specific task is not a prescriptive thing for the church today. The, the Christian church, since the book of Acts, has not advanced across the world through, through military conquest. Or at least they have tried to. They, they have tried to, <laughs> and it was it was not good. That's not the way that Christ 
designed his church to function and to advance. We advance by proclamation, by proclamation, by growing our families and discipling our children to believe in God, to believe and trust in his word by, by winning converts and discipling them and teaching them to obey God's law. And by, by reform, by slow reform, not by revolution, not by military might. And so that can be contrasted with the Islamic faith, which expanded through military conquest. And, you know, look at the countries that have a Christian heritage versus a country, countries that have Muslim heritage or are still Muslim. And you can tell me which ones you'd rather live in. When, when those principles are applied, do you believe in the principles of conquering by might and subjugating people or by slow reformation, by conversion through proselytism and not by force? So he says um, that, okay, gruesome. How do you give an account to a morality with a measuring set that has such inconsistencies and changes in interpretations? Because it's not specific enough, I, I can't really understand what he's saying. However, a lot of people uh, conflate a couple, uh, the idea of, um, of in, not interpretations, what am I thinking of? The passing down versus the uh, translation, transmission and translation. So people say, oh, so it's been translated so many times. How would you know? Well, actually, we have the original languages. So you can translate into almost any language. Obviously, there are people groups that don't have the Bible in their language, but you can translate from the original language into every modern language that we have now. You might be confusing transmission, so maybe that's what he's talking about, or if he's talking about actual interpretations, I mean, that is something that Christians talk about today, is what Bible passages mean. But what a faithful Christian would do is listen to teachers and investigate themselves. Women and men, it would be a little bit different probably. But we would sit under faithful Bible teachers who exegetically preach and not do not eisegete the passage, do not read into the passage what they want it to mean, but take the scripture as a whole to interpret the rest of scripture. So it's a fabric, it's a mosaic that all fits together. They aren't independent ideas that you're trying to merge together. It's everything working together that gives you an understanding of who God is, what his story is, what his plan is. And there are still mysteries built into that. That's why so much of the Christian life is built on faith, because we don't know necessarily, well, we definitely don't know what tomorrow holds, We de- and we don't know what a year from now, 10 years from now will hold. But Bible principles, going back to the Old Testament, can be applied to every situation. The Bible also says that that God's word is sufficient for all of life and and godliness. So there's nothing that we're lacking within the Bible to make a decision on every every crossroad that we come to. So do you have any thoughts on the interpretation part? Yeah, I mean, I would on the inconsistencies, I would encourage you, you and anyone who's listening who thinks thinks something in the scripture is an inconsistency. Maybe you saw it in a meme or you happened upon it on a Reddit forum that the Bible is a a long book. It's a collection of 66 books 
by a variety of different authors that was written over a several thousand year period. And people who don't like God, don't believe in God, who hate the Bible, who don't like Christians, are probably not the best authorities if you're looking at a meme that they made about why the Bible is so dumb and inconsistent. Um, don't don't get sucked in by you know what may very well be a, a 12 year old behind a computer screen putting two Bible verses, divorcing them, taking two Bible verses, divorcing them from their contexts and putting them together and saying, oh, this one says this and this one says something and they contradict each other. Therefore, the Bible is inconsistent. That's not the way that a, a, a charitable person would read a text like that and interpret it. So if you think there's something that's inconsistent, chances are other people have thought the same thing and Christians have pro probably have an answer that's a few thousand years old to your question. So, you know, I, I've seen people like, well, how could, it, how could, if God is good and loving, how could he allow evil? It's like, oh, Christians have been talking about the problem of evil for thousands of years. I mean, read the book of Job, read the Old Testament, read the, new, read the whole thing, read the whole Bible, and you'll see, you'll see things that will help you, and then you can read old, old Christian dudes with the white beards and you know, names that you can't even pronounce, and they were, they were talking about it thousands of years ago. So the questions that some of the new atheists like Dawkins or Hitchens had they've been they've been answered and maybe they they're not answered to the satisfaction of these guys but there's some pretty good answers out there there's also the issue of when you come to the bible a a real um student is going to come to the come under the bible not over the bible and what people tend to do is they they come to the bible on top of it and they are the judge but if that is the the word of the living god it is judging you so when you read it, it should be revealing things in you, who you are, that requires repentance, requires forgiveness, requires God to clean you and wash you of that, instead of, well, this doesn't meet my standard. If the Bible doesn't meet your standard, and it won't, and you reject it, it's because you have made yourself your God. It's not because it's not good enough. It's because you have flipped, you've reversed the roles. Mm. And so... So often the question of evil is stated like this. Why would a good and loving God send people to hell? Whereas the real question is, why would a holy and righteous God love and give his life for sinners? And so it just, when we ask questions in the former way, manner, mm -hmm. it betrays our absolute lack of humility, our absolute pride, um, that we trust in ourselves and don't trust in our creator. So this it made me think of Proverbs 26, 4. So when people talk about inconsistencies in the Bible, I'm going to read two different verses. Here's the first verse. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Okay. Another verse says this. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. There's two different instructions there. So it's like, okay, you read that. The other verse must be somewhere else in the Bible and someone happens upon it and they're like, oh, there's a mistake. There's an inconsistency. However, the writer of this proverb wrote them back to back. 
right? Those are two verses right next to each other. Was it an accident? Well, obviously not. He meant to say it. So when people are reading scripture and they're like, oh, it's an inconsistency, there are apparent paradoxes because it's God talking to humans. God is omniscient. There's no beginning and end to God. There's no one language of God. There's no um, God learn. God doesn't learn anything. God is all-knowing at all times. So he's talking to us. Our pastor says he's using like baby talk, essentially, that he's having to condescend himself. And so when you're reading scripture and you're trying to find paradox or you're trying to find inconsistencies, um, you will make them. You will determine that they are there because you do not want to submit to the authority of God. That's what scripture says. Romans 1 says, everyone knows God, but they subvert the knowledge of God or suppress the knowledge mm-hmm. of God in unrighteousness. There is not an atheist on the face of the planet. I don't, I, I don't submit to the the claim that anyone's atheist. I don't. Everyone knows God. You who are listening, you know there's a God. You struggle with this. You think about it because you're made in God's image. You betray your image bearerness by asking these questions because God is a, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, beginning of instruction for knowledge. So because you want to learn, because you want to know, there is this curiosity and this wonderment of who God is, but you are suppressing it in unrighteousness. So um, did you have anything else that you wanted to add to that, to his comment there? Pick and choose. We don't pick and choose. Now, Phil and I have talked a lot about what law in the Old Testament we still apply to today. Um, So first and foremost, I think that... Let me know if I'm saying anything incorrect. But first and foremost, Christ is the fulfillment of all of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law, specifically ceremonial law. He is the sacrifice for our sins. Whereas the Hebrews continuously sacrificed, he is the final sacrifice for our sins. There is no more paying a sacrifice, going to the temple. Um, That is finished and complete. However, so I think you got. It's probably worth taking a, a minute to unpack that idea in the Old Testament because it's very foreign to us. So very common in religions all over the world to have some kind of sacrifice to to pay for sin. So there's a debt that's incurred by our sin, by our disobedience to God, by our acts, words, or thoughts that break God's law, either by omission or commission. And so there's something that's not right. There's a debt that's owed and and it has to be made right. And so the Old Testament from Genesis chapter three, where Adam and Eve fall into sin by eating the fruit that God told them not to eat. uh, There's a, there's a sacrifice in a sense where they realize that they're naked and God kills an animal and gives them the skins as clothing to cover their nakedness. And so as early as the third chapter in the Bible, you see this idea that God is holy, that sin is, is bad, that those who sin incur a debt and death as a result, and that there needs to be a sacrifice to cover that sin. Then fast forward into the book of Exodus, there's the Passover where the, the Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt and 
Moses is leading them and telling Pharaoh, king of Egypt, God wants his people to be freed so they can go and worship him in another land. Pharaoh refuses and there's judgment. And that judgment involves the, the killing by the angel of the Lord of the firstborn of all people and animals in the land of Egypt unless there is a lamb that is slain and its blood covers the doorpost and that was a sign for the angel of the Lord to pass over because someone else, something else had borne that death. So death did not enter that household because the lamb had died in the place of those people and it was set up as a sign for them to know what is wicked and what is right and how how our sins paid for. But it was a sign or a symbol that was prefiguring the final, once and final sacrifice for all time in which Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, perfect sinless Jesus, fully God and fully man, sacrificed his life on the cross. He died for our sins. His, his body was entombed and he rose again three days later, conquering sin and death. But he was alive and he literally died and he literally, he really did come back to life. And so it's important to understand the idea of sacrifice, how sacrifice covers sin, how it turns away God's God, it propitiates or turns away the wrath of God. It's a payment of a debt. And so everything that was going on in the Old Testament, the hundreds and thousands and even millions of bulls and goats and lambs and, and sparrows and animals that were sacrificed, whose blood was, was thrown on the altar of God, were all pointing to Christ, the once and final sacrifice. And so since he has been sacrificed, the, the perfect sacrifice, we don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. And because we have been made clean by his, by his blood. It talks about how we are, we are washed by his blood that we don't need rituals and ceremonies to make us clean, to approach God in the same way that there was laws about cleanliness and uncleanliness in the, not in the physical sense that like you have a smudge of dirt on your face, so you can't go into the temple, but there were certain things that you may have touched, interacted with, or done that would make you ceremonially unclean to approach the throne of the living God in the tabernacle or the temple. And so there was need for rituals and purification so people understood that you can't come into the presence of the, the true and living God mm -hmm. flippantly. Mm -hmm. You must prepare yourself and be clean. But now we have become clean by Jesus. And so those ceremonial laws have been fulfilled and are no longer in effect. And, and Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. And I believe that that is primarily what Jesus was talking about when he said that he fulfilled the law, is that he fulfilled the ceremonial sacrificial law in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Mm -hmm. So there are distinctions. Well, we, we kind of draw distinctions with Old Testament law, right? With Within... Uh, 
Jewish life, those those are kind of artificial distinctions because the Jews would submit to all of the mm-hmm. law. Um, but as Christians, we see that, like you said, the ceremonial law was to was to render us clean or allow us to approach God. That now we have that that cleanliness, I guess, that cleaning is perfect and complete. Yeah. It's not a continual thing. Um, but then there's moral law, which I, Christians would say is a reflection of God's character, right? And yeah. so the reason why we would say something like the Ten Commandments, which is an expression of who God is. What, am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. Expression of who God is. If those were to not continue, it would be a, an assault on his own character. Those are expressions of his character. Um, he is unchanging. He has no beginning, no end. So if those are an expression of his character, they will always be an expression of his character. It always points to, to, to who he is. But what I think our my friend is talking about is more of the civil law, right? And case law, or the case law of the Old Testament. So civil law would be those uh, in which there was some type of... of of response to the breaking of that particular law. Jewish law, Jewish civil law is an example of case law, which means that it's not, I think the other one is stat- statutory law in mm-hmm. which you, and I think Louisiana is like the only state in the United States that has statutory law, but every other state has case law, which means that there doesn't need to be a particular law for every situation. You can apply the principle from the law to any situation. So that obviously that goes back to the old Testament. So there are particular laws that he's bringing up. He's like, well, why don't you apply this now? Yeah. Why do we eat shrimp or pork? Why, why, why would we be permitted to wear a mixed blend of fabrics? Why would certain things not be punished in the same way that are punished? Certain crimes not be punished in the same way. Crimes are, are violations of God's, law not be punished in the same way now than they were punished under the under the mosaic law Mm -hmm. right yeah and so first of all i would encourage you don't take the 12 year old atheist way to say oh look at all the christians they wear mixed fabric it's in the old testament it's in the bible they don't believe they don't really believe it's like dude (laughs) like do some reading um it's like the answers for that are out there and if you think that's like the gotcha moment that's gonna break someone's christian I mean, he faith did, he doesn't yeah this this guy didn't i i don't know you know but i've i've seen enough stuff online um yeah it's just like it's it's really juvenile so for uh, i think a good example is there is a law in the old testament that says do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk yeah and so someone would say well could could you do that today? What would be the violation? The principle that is extracted from that is don't use what was made for life to kill. So you could extract a lot of principles out of that. You could say, if women are made to bear life, don't use them in armed forces. They shouldn't be the ones actually in battle killing other people. Mm. So there is a principle that is associated with each Old Testament law. Now, it would take a long time to go through each and every one that people but, have done it, that people have done it. And so, and we aren't the authority yeah. figures, but we have asked, I think similar questions. I think Christians should ask similar questions. Okay. 
why is it that we don't, you know, no one's telling me about a young goat to mother's milk? Well, first of all, no one's actually probably going to do that now. Not a lot of people own goats in the United States. But second of all, because it's a principle that meant to be applied. And another one is like tattoos. Okay, tattoos are cutting yourself. There were certain cultural realities in which God instructed his people to be sanctified or set apart from those people because these certain acts were so strongly associated with pagans and they were not pagans. And so there needed to be a a physical reality, a physical reminder of how they were separate. One of them is obviously circumcision. You know, that would that set the Israelites apart from mm-hmm. the pagans. So there's a lot to there there's a lot that goes into that, but basically what it boils down to is these questions have been addressed and are continuously addressed by Bible teachers. And I think they bring really good closure and understanding to how we as Christians don't pick and choose, but apply every principle from scripture to today. Yeah. Anything else? And even with us, um, we've had some, some serious growth in how we understand and are trying to apply God's law and the principles from old and new Testament to our lives. Now, if just in the last two years, one major way would be our understanding of the role of the civil government, what its responsibilities are, what our responsibilities to Christians are. So for instance, you might read a verse that says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities and think that that means that Christians are enjoined by Holy Scripture to obey everything that the civil government says. But then if you read another verse where the apostles have been brought before the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, and are being questioned about why they continue to preach the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which is kind of causing some uproar as people believe it and, and start to repent and change. They say, well, judge for yourselves, whether it's right to obey God or men. And so, you know, the where the government has told you to disobey the clear commands of God. Well, even though it says here that you have to be subject and obey the governing authorities, we know that from other scriptures that we can't when they tell us to violate God's law. And And then there's a third situation Mm -hmm. where they command something that doesn't violate God's law, but they may not have the God-given authority to command obedience in that area. For instance, does the government have authority to tell you what color shirt or hat you have to wear on any given day. Well, it's not a sin for you to wear a a red shirt or a red baseball cap. And so if the government told you to do it, does that mean you'd have to submit because they have authority and because it's, they haven't told you to do something that's sinful or wicked? Well, no, because God has not given the authority to the civil government to tell people what they must or must not wear in that regard. Um, And I would add, if someone submits to that, you are subscribing to the fact that the state is your God. You are paying homage to them as your ultimate authority. Yeah. What unknowingly or knowingly, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. So what is, what authority does the civil government really have? That's a very important question. And a lot of Christians and non-Christians alike 
have been thinking about that based on how based on our government's response to the pandemic uh, and many other things, uh, issues of social justice and Black Lives Matter and things like that. What what authority and responsibility does the civil government have towards its citizens in terms of establishing some kind of more equitable outcome for the economics or the the social relational um, aspects of our life or in terms of public health you know what what authority do they have and what do they not have and just because something is enshrined in law or in our constitution doesn't necessarily mean it's moral or right we, we can think of a lot of examples in which yeah. there are things enshrined in law that weren't moral or right. So this actually gets to a message that he sent. He said, I think you're missing the broader message on mask mandates also. I don't like masks, and I know that I'll be fine and most will, but I wear a mask anytime I'm indoors and see someone else wearing one because I don't know their situation. You are a strong role model that people look towards. You stated yourself that they work just not that much. I don't know Jesus nearly as much as you do, but I feel he would wear a mask even if it has a fraction of a chance of saving a life. Just because I don't know that I infected someone that went on to kill their grandparent through transmission doesn't mean I should turn a blind eye to that possibility. It seems like a small price to pay for societal awareness and compassion. Okay, can I start? Okay. By all means. <laughs> okay, so the first thing I would say is it, it people are... Our society has been so arrogant in the conversation with masks and and uh, vaccines. And the reason for that is because when you ask what are the drawbacks and what are the unforeseen consequences, people are like, oh, that's not part of the question. But we know based on how God made our bodies, how God made us to respond to diseases and outbreaks, see the Old Testament, that this was a very unwise way to respond to it. Why? If you are injecting something into your body that you are not fully aware of what the possible repercussions could be and the risk analysis, and you haven't taken a risk analysis into account, then you are not being faithful by taking it. Okay. Because you are putting something into your body that your body is a temple. It is given to you by God. You are a creation of God. You are to steward it well. So even if someone somewhere tells you or this authority figure tells you that this is going to be, you're, you're going to help everyone else by doing this, I can name a million times that that has happened and it has not ended up well at all. One is the case of thalidomide, obviously, given to pregnant women saying, hey, this is going to help your morning sickness. And what did they have? They had babies with one arm, one leg, terrible birth defects. People think they're experts in bodies. God is the expert in bodies. So to kind of shirk off the idea that God hasn't made our bodies to function in this world, to respond to diseases in ways that he's provided for us in food and exercise and sunlight. And what were the things that the government never talked about? Those three things, food, exercise, sunlight, and what it meant to actually be in the presence of other people, closeness, touching. That has a physiological impact on you and no one talked about it. Okay. The I, other saw, I saw a picture of, and I don't know, maybe it was staged, but it was like a newborn baby in a hospital that had some kind of a shield or protection 
to where the baby wasn't having skin to skin, this newborn wasn't having skin to skin contact with its mother or something. I mean, it's just like wild stuff like that. Outrageous. Yeah. And if you know what the baby needs, if you know anything about birth, you know the baby needs its mother immediately after birth for its well-being physically, for its well-being emotionally, and I guarantee you for its well-being spiritually as well. Okay, I want to also... I I want to say something too. So that idea of knowing what you're putting into or on your body doesn't extend, or it's not limited just to to medicines and vaccines. Uh, Danae and I have been talking about even the food that we eat things that have lots of preservatives, a very long list of chemicals. Lotions. Lotions that you put on your your face. Uh, Even the fabrics that you wear, are you wearing something that has natural fibers or something that's a polyester plastic? Um, Think think back to how Americans, you know, one of the more advanced nations in the world, think how people lived 100 years ago. So that would put you like kind of back in the time right before the Great Depression. Most people had their own gardens. Maybe they had chickens or things like that. There was a lot more people who were involved in farming. The like pesticides and all like this is a very recent development that we have all, all these artificial preservatives and chemicals and flavoring agents in our food that we've used fertilizers and chemicals in agriculture that we've pumped meat animals full of antibiotics and hormones and hormones that they're being fed soy a not soy and a, and a non-natural diet to to gain weight and like legitimately i don't really think we know what the consequences are our bodies no. and these and the, like the living ecosystem it's so complex that that's why it's baffling to me that we're so arrogant to say like, oh, if you did this, it would have this outcome. Yeah. It's not a univariate analysis. There's so many variables in play. And so go okay. And so anyway, anyway, we're we're like trying to really take this idea seriously. All of scripture, all of Christ applied for all aspects of our life and trying to, you know, it's not like we have to do a complete revolution in our lives and throw out all the chemicals and all the artificial foods and only eat organic tomorrow. But I think that's the trajectory we want our family to go. So like we're, we're really taking this seriously. And you know, Danae took our, um, our daughter or son to the pediatrician oh. and she told the pediatrician, I don't make any decisions here in the clinic. I get the information and I go back and I think about it. I do my own, do some research talk about it with my husband and so even for that like i don't know can can you trust all these people can you trust all these authorities and i don't even think that people all, all people i know all people aren't knowingly doing this yeah right but we do so many people have a savior complex and have this we've made ourselves into god's image we have reversed it And so, or sorry, we've made God into our image. I don't know if I said that right in the first time. But anyway, we made God into our image. Like, oh, he would do this. This is what Jesus would do. Blah, 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 blah. Instead of actually standing back, let the scripture, let the text of scripture speak for itself and then act. So practical example, uh, this last week, one of our kids had an ear infection. And so... I, 
I didn't really know what to do with the whole antibiotic thing because I didn't want to give a bunch of antibiotics to my kids. But at the same time, he had an ear infection. So I was like, well, maybe I should, you know, I'm going to go to urgent care. So of course they prescribe antibiotics. So I went to CVS to get them. And when I was picking them up, one of the workers, I don't think it was a pharmacist, but one of the workers there, maybe with pharmacy tech, had said, oh my gosh, our antibiotics are flying off the shelf. And I said, I was like, oh, can you explain why? I already knew why. I already knew why. <laughs> because two years ago, when this all started, there were people saying, don't trust what's being told to you about masks, about vaccines. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I, you know, trust these conspiracy theorists. But anyway, they ended up being right. So... Um, I said, why do you think that is? And she said, well, because the masks were protecting us from for more than just viruses. We weren't being exposed to it. Therefore, all of a sudden you're exposed to everything at one time and everyone's getting sick. And it is true across the board. Almost everyone I've talked to, when I talk to ask them about their kids, how are their kids? They're sick nonstop. And I know compared to during the pandemic time, People weren't getting sick because no one was seeing each other, but it also totally ruined people's immune systems. So what good did we actually do in wearing masks? Well, we just exposed ourselves now to all of these potential infections at one time. Okay, our kids are sick every two weeks. Every two weeks. I'm going to lose my mind. But anyway, sick all the time. We're sick a bunch. Um, so was also the rates of depression and suicidality and anxiety, etc., are through the roof in the United States and probably elsewhere. I haven't looked as much elsewhere. So, um, well, not to mention, let's let's continue on about this. Uh, the fact that the economy is crashing, uh, the fact that food chain <laughs> the food chains are being broken. Um, was it worth it? Were, was wearing a mask and and people having this in, this this intense anxiety every time you're around another human, was that actually worth it? 100% no. I'm not going to say, oh, I'll leave it up to the jury to decide. No, it's already been decided. It's pretty obvious. No, it was not worth it. So wearing a mask, I can understand part of that argument if you didn't know enough to say, oh, okay, maybe, you know, maybe this would help this person, you know, if I wore a mask in this particular scenario at a particular time. But we know enough that universal mask wearing Anytime you're around another person indoors, indoors has drastic negative effects. And so I can't, I can't even entertain that argument anymore because we know way too much about how it's hurt people in the long term. So Yeah, so the guy said at the end of the last message Sine read that it, wearing a mask is a small price to pay. Oh gosh, that's such a and, lie. And so... Not from him, he's believed the lie. Yeah. Like, you have to really think about what is the price in terms of public policy and laws and in terms of economics, everything has trade-offs. And so what are the trade-offs? So you're talking about masking, uh, of which the effectiveness was hotly debated. Intuitively, it makes sense, but in a scientific real world, setting so that there were there were experiments about what can pass through masks certain layers certain types of masks that were done in lab settings well that's one thing but when you think about how people actually wear masks in the real world touching their face all the time the masks are falling down i saw people in the parking lots of grocery stores drop their mask on the ground and then pick it back up and put it on their face because you know you have to have it going into the store or well, 
after a while, the workers stop caring and enforcing it, but you yeah. might get other people that try to shame you because you're not doing the thing that is has such a small price, but you don't have another mask on you, so you drop it. Well, you know, I guess I just pick it up and put this dirty thing back on my face. You had people who were re-wearing the same masks day after day after day and not washing them, well, me included, because I just I didn't really believe in it. I believe that that probably had some, at least some negative effects on my health in retrospect and that I should have thrown it in the wash or done something to it um, at least every day or so. You had people who were wearing things that technically complied with the rules, but they knew didn't actually do anything. So they're, they're literally living a lie. And that has a psychological effect on you that you know that you have to live this lie. They know they're lying. I know that they know they're lying. They know that I know that they know they're lying. And that's, that's not a healthy place to be in. So that, that's a key to remember. A lot of people, I don't think, took seriously, seriously contemplated what the negative effects and consequences of this masking would be. And I, I, am, I am in many, well, I, I'm very appalled. So when I drive around town, most adults that I see aren't wearing masks anymore, but I see a lot of young people yeah. of like fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth graders, high schoolers wearing masks, walking to school in the morning or coming home from school. And many times there's no one around them. Yeah. Like they're literally walking alone on the street and they have a mask on their face. And I'm like, why? What is going on with these kids? Were they Were they brainwashed? Do they think that they're doing something virtuous by wearing a mask outdoors when there's or no one around want their face or, seen. or are they ashamed yeah. of their face now mm -hmm. is there something psychologically going on that like what i have to offer the world in terms of my face and my smile and my personality it's well it wasn't worth enough to show the last few years right. and so i might as well just kind of keep it all covered and protect myself from from the bullying, from the negative effects of the world, from really being seen and known. Right. I mean, these are, I, I don't know, there's people I talked to that would probably dismiss this, but this is, this is real. And these things are part of what is driving these young people to be depressed, to commit suicide. It's an assault on the image bearerness of God. Yeah. It's an assault on being an image bearer of God to say that your face doesn't matter. And that your face is actually more potentially dangerous than it could be helpful. You were made to smile. People were made to see you smile. You were made to see, yeah. <laughs> so anytime I see my students now with their full face, I'm like, thank you, thank you. I love your face. Your face is beautiful. And uh, I just think it's such a manipulation tactic to say that, oh, what, what a small price to pay. The yeah. price that you pay is being a full image bearer of God by showing your face. There's a there's an art project that I've seen online and it's people's faces before and after. I told them, it's like I took a picture before and after I told them they were beautiful or something like that. And just even in that, I think it was in, I might've been in New York City or something. You know, people are walking around, there's people everywhere but they're not really paying attention to the other people. And so you have this brief interaction, take a picture, then tell the person, you know, you're, you're beautiful. It's just like this gut reaction of a smile to it. It is a beautiful thing. Yes. And that like you, you didn't see people smile outside for years, for two years. It's like, mm -hmm. that's wild. Yep. 
Nothing like that has ever happened in the history of the world before. So this next comment, I think God is science. People wrote and thought a lot of things back then and did the best with what they could. If, uh, if there's anything that is uh, omnipresent and omniscient, it's the law of physics and how matter and energy interact. Do we keep going? No, I think that's okay. fine. I mean, I totally disagree with that. Science, science is a way of knowing. A process. It's a process. It means hypothesizing and crafting experiments in the attempt to disprove your hypothesis. And if you continue to do ex well-designed experiments that don't prove your hypothesis, then you may claim to have some knowledge or a valid theory about the way the natural world works. Science doesn't tell us anything about what ought to be in the moral or metaphysical sense. It can only, it can only tell us about the natural world, about and matter and, and energy. And only some about the natural world. Yeah. And not everything can be tested scientifically. So people make claims about the beginning of the universe, the nature of, of creation. And you know, you can't do repeatable scientific experiments to disprove or prove that hypothesis. You can do to disprove that uh, hypothesis. Or to disprove. Yeah, yeah, you you like you can't well, I'm, I'm going to try to create a, a new world out of nothing. Or, or, I mean, they know. have the, there are some experiments on a very a much smaller scale, mm -hmm. right? That tried to try to duplicate the first amino acid sequencing or the first you know amino yeah. acids that came. But yeah, there. I mean, you you really are extrapolating from what you know now as to what the environments were then, and yeah, you, yeah, you can't. You so, can't that. what is or who is God? Right? Not what is God, but who, who is God. We believe that God is a being with a mind and a purpose. That God is omniscient. That God knows all things at all times. That God is omnipresent. That he in his fullness is everywhere all at the same time. That God lives outside of time. That everything exists was created by him and for him and through him that he sustains all things science doesn't have sustaining power science doesn't have creative power science doesn't have agency science is just simply a process to try to know things and and one that is limited to or the one that is very limited um and the other thing with laws of the laws of physics, there is no ought that comes from that. And so, so much of this argumentation is because of this, I ought, or this is good, or this is bad, or we should, or we shouldn't, or I could, or, you know, I could, I, I shouldn't, or I should. There is no ought associated with the laws of physics. Yeah. They are period, right? They don't, they don't actually from them you cannot extrapolate a good a moral good or mm -hmm. a moral bad so he ends up saying knowing that everything is the way it should be because it is pretty much the only way that allows it to be that way is pretty comforting and wait then, wait can i go back real yeah. quick uh -huh. so he says that if there is anything that is omnipresent and omniscient it is the laws of physics and how matter and energy interact which obviously those can't be omniscient. Yeah, I mean they don't they don't have knowledge or knowing. 
I think he's saying that those laws are universal, that they apply everywhere in the same way at all, at all times. Um, I mean, we haven't to, I'm not a physicist. Uh, I'm an engineer, so I have taken some physics, but not high level physics. Um, but it would seem to me that if you have space, a vacuum, nothingness, then if, if there is nothing, then there's no law that governs nothing because there's nothing. And there are places in, in the universe laws are where there, there to govern. is nothing. Laws are there to govern Things. what what is yeah. matter and energy. And so, like, if there was ever a, a time, which there wouldn't be a time because time has meaning in the sense of matter. of matter. So if there was ever a time when there was no matter then there couldn't be any laws because there's no time and there's no matter. There's so they're not, matter. maybe they're, perhaps they're not as universal as you, as you think. Um, and, and even in terms of physics, we think of Newtonian physics and how, you know, the gravity works and a ball falls towards the, the earth here. Um, and those, the same laws of gravity would apply if there are different celestial bodies on the moon, just a different gravitational acceleration coefficient. But on the microscopic level, when you're talking about quantum physics, it, it's like a different set of laws and it doesn't make sense in the same way. So I don't know how you, how you square that. It's, it's almost like there's these contradicting mm. laws that are happening. Um, so again, just I'm sort of positing and and this I don't know this argument would maybe maybe a physicist would rip me to shreds in it, but on that real basic level that I laid out, maybe there's more to more to consider in terms of the universality of these laws, um, because God is everywhere in His fullness all the time, but I don't think that you could make a, a bulletproof case that these laws are. So he says, I don't need to think I'm some special part of that, of the world to admire everything and want to do my best to be positive to my surroundings. I am nice because I am so lucky and love everyone because they are all a product of nature and nurture. Both they have, both they have very little control over. So it would be immature or ignorant to hold um, that against them. Just some words that stand out is admire, is positive, is lucky. Uh, there's another one, a love, a product of nature. So there, by what standard? Is there something to admire? By what standard are you being positive? By what standard are you um, nice? By what standard do you love everyone? You have no standard that you reference. And so what do those words even mean? Also, if everything is kind of predetermined by how the universe began, there you are not lucky. You just are. You you just are. You're just a product of what happened around you. And there's really no reason based off that to love anyone or everyone. Like what compels you to do that? And I'll tell you what compels you to do that. You're an image bearer of God. So you love people, you love mankind, because you were made to love them by God. By your own admission that you love them, you are betraying the fact that you are made in God's image because the reason that you gave doesn't cut it. 
It doesn't even close to cut it. It yeah. actually doesn't make sense. You are not making sense. And I'm not saying this as a condescension. I'm saying it as a wake up. Wake up. You know that you were made in God's image. You know there's a God who made you. You know you love people. Okay, but you're trying to find a reason to resist it. You're trying to find a reason to excuse it. You can't excuse it. Your excuses don't make any sense. I'm glad you said them out loud because if you don't say them out loud, you don't realize really how ridiculous they are. And whenever I finally admitted things out loud, I realized, oh, yeah, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. What are your thoughts? I'll scroll back. I can't say it anymore. Oh, I was going to the next one. Sorry. Um, I think about love. So it says in First John that God is love. Um, and it says this is how we know that we love God, speaking to Christians, is that we love, we love the brethren. We love our fellow believers in Christ. And I think while that is specifically true in terms of Christians, it's also generally true in terms of other people that to the degree which we 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 reach inside or, or we we are when when we when a, when a human whether that human believes in god or not does something that is truly loving and self-sacrificial for someone else there is a connection with the divine in that moment we're imaging to the rest of mankind and all of creation something about god something about his nature his character when we do something that is truly loving. And then in terms of love, uh, our culture is very confused about what love is. Um, love is not kind of giving in or helping someone do whatever it is they want to do, right? Sometimes love hurts, tough love. It's a real thing. In terms of our kids, right? If our, if our kids needed uh if my my four-year-old broke a bone and we were in the in the wilderness Oregon Trail kind of deal and we needed to set the bone to to set the break so that it would heal properly he'd have use of his his arm that there wouldn't be something going on that's going to cause an infection or internal bleeding we're going to have to cause our son immense pain for a moment because we love him we're gonna we're gonna hurt him we're gonna hurt him bad when we reset this break in his arm so people look at how we interact with others and say well you're not loving because you're not affirming because you're not doing these things in the way the other people would want to receive love like in that moment a four-year-old doesn't understand that he needs to go through the trial and the pain of getting his arm reset so that he will heal and will be better in the future. If, if it was up to him, you know, he'd never do that. He'd eat candy all the time. He wouldn't go to sleep when he's supposed to. Like you love people by sometimes forcing them or, or doing things to them that, they, that are unwelcome, that they don't want. And that's just the reality. And that's something that our culture really doesn't understand. Can't argue with that. Okay, it's one of the most religious... Okay, uh, yeah, sadly it is. I use my degree... Okay, no, that wasn't part of it. Okay, it's one of the most religious atheist points of view, which is an oxymoron, of course, but 
How amazing is it that statistically speaking, we are all miracles and everything happens for a reason. LOL, just one that is extremely complex. It's almost so scientific, it takes on a scary complex system. And like I said earlier, God is science. When you apply this logic to a lot of things in life and across time, it makes so much sense. It makes it makes partial sense. I think that just still goes back to the fact that yeah, I, mean, I don't really understand. God's image. I don't understand what he's trying to say there. Just saying that basically chemical reactions explain everything. But everything is the way it is. It seems miraculous that all those reactions ended up producing this. And that's the problem with calling anything beautiful or wonderful when we are just an accident. There isn't any, there is nothing that is beautiful. Yeah, well, I mean, a miracle is something that can't be explained by something that happens outside of natural processes. Right, so the the resurrection of Jesus was a miracle. Stuff like that doesn't happen. Dead people don't rise on a regular basis. Right. Um, Ever really, and no one's been yeah. resurrected, but Jesus came back to life, but not resurrected. New bot. I think that's true. <laughs> I yeah. think I think that's theologically true. So here, I want everyone to be happy, and if that is religion for you, then I want that for you. I'm not out here trying to convert people to atheism. I don't think it is for everyone, clearly. Definitely not for natural pessimists or people lacking the need for accountability for a guideline for morality. And I mean you, like everyone that is passionate about their faith. So he's basically saying, I want everyone to be happy. By what standard? <laughs> yeah, we can keep just going yeah. back to that. No, seriously, that is that is the question that you can ask yourself all the time, by what standard? Do I say this? Or and, do I believe this? Or... Yeah. Mm -hmm. But why? Yeah, yeah, like my four-year-old. Why? But why? But why? Why? Mm -hmm. And that is just, your statement there is just a pragmatic approach. Okay, well, I'm going to answer the final question. I just want people to be happy. That's my, like, my mantra. That's what I live by. But I don't think you actually even buy that yourself. Because there's going to be some things that make people happy that you're going to think are horrible. <laughs> So, and, and people are not going to agree on that. So this is a really interesting one that Phil and I have talked about before. So a lot of people use the standard, does it hurt anyone? So they'll say, okay, it's okay for someone to do X, Y, or Z because it doesn't hurt anyone. So they use the same argument for gay marriage. What does it matter what two people in the bedroom privately do to, to each other, mm -hmm. right? What is it? How is it hurting anyone? So we could ask a question saying, if your neighbor was had a lot of animals and he was having sex with all those animals and then killing the animals and having sex with them. But literally it didn't, it didn't do anything with diseases, like no diseases spread. Um, he was completely clean about it, like cleaned up everything. You never smelled anything. You never heard anything, but you knew because he told you, would you say, I just want him to be happy. Would you say that? I don't think most honest people would. Some people would go that far because they realize that they have no footing anymore and they want to be consistent. But most rational people would say, no, I think that's really gross. I think they it's might, really messed yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, they might begrudgingly say it's okay. But deep but down in their heart, they know that you're grossed it's, out it's by immoral. It. You're yeah. grossed out by it. You think, is that a good thing? Would you put them on the same footing as, you know, a person that you esteem, you know, that is, is kind of virtuous? No, you wouldn't because you think it's gross. Why? Because you're made in God's image. You're meant to think that is disgusting. It's degrading. You're meant to think that yeah. bestiality is a sin. So 
everyone, every time I talk to them about this, is just betrays them being made in God's image. And they show it over and over and over. There's so many people I know that say, oh, I don't believe in God, but they do all of these godly things and they they show how they're made like God and the ways that they serve and the way that they, they act toward their wife or their husband, the way that they you know care for their kids self-sacrificially, right? And it's because again, they were made by a God who does that. Let's see, there was another one about abortion. I don't know if that's even worth getting into. That could be a whole other Yeah, that could be another conversation. Uh, there was more here too. But I think that probably suffices for now. Yeah. I here's, here's one thing that I'd just like to throw out there in terms of abortion. So there are, it's obviously a, a fraught political issue. Uh, people feel very strongly about it. I strongly believe that, that we should all agree that there's no middle ground, right? It either should be totally illegal under every circumstance or it's permissible anytime, right? It, because what we're talking about is what is that preborn baby, that fetus? Is it human or not? Is it, is it worthy of protection or not? So the circumstances of its conception, whether it was an accidental pregnancy, whether it was intended, whether it was rape or incest, should be immaterial to the value of that human life. Um, it's obviously a human life because it's not a it's not a bear, it's not a dog, it's it's a human, right? It has this it has the DNA, and so what we're really talking about is location, degree of development, degree of dependency. All these things that if you applied them consistently would would give you permission to kill a human humans born humans at other stages right so you there is no political or moral middle ground in saying well these abortions are okay and these are not it's either immoral and needs to be done away with completely or it's it's fine um, and so for those people who are are still on the fence where they're like, man, I don't know if I really want it. To, I don't really like it. It doesn't seem good, but I don't really want it to be illegal because bodily sovereignty or, you know, whatever reason it is. You need to think really carefully about why, why it would be allowed. Like what is actually happening when an abortion is performed? What is being aborted? Is it just a clump of cells that has no value or is it a human? Is it, is it something that, is it someone made in God's image? And, and in terms of, of policy and, and politics, think about what does your vote mean? And what are you telling your elected representatives, right? Because in California, what is slowly happening and will probably happen relatively quickly in the near future is that the the politicians and people who really favor abortion are going to try to pass laws that not only like legal make it legal and expand access to it but they're going to take taxpayer money in our state money collected from people like me and my wife who think it's murder 
and they're going to use that money to pay more and more women to try to make it easier for them to do it and not only women in our state but they're going to pay women in states where abortion is outlawed to fly to california to stay in a hotel to, to eat while they they do this so like there really is no compromise right these people aren't willing to compromise in any way with the millions of Californians who either believe it sh abortion should be illegal or believe there should be heavy restrictions. Like if, if you talk, I feel like if you talk to most reasonable people and, and you told them like, Hey, I'm really against abortion. I think it's murder. Do you think I should have to pay for other people to get abortions? They would say, well, well, no, but you can't like, you can't say they can't do it, but you shouldn't have to pay for it. But that's what's happening, right? That's what's, that is what is happening now and that is what will continue to happen. Mm -hmm. So think about what it means. And, and I think if you, really, if you really do consider it, you will realize that there is no middle ground. Either it's meaningless, it's just normal health care, and yeah, whatever, who cares what you think? Pay for it, you know? We'll point the government gun at you and say, if you don't pay your taxes, we're going to throw you in jail. We're going to take everything you have. So pay for it. And just shut up. That's what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. Nope. Obviously. But the culture of death does not know that we know the man that defeated death. So that's going to... Their days are numbered. Yeah. Ours aren't. Which is great. And... Great news. And one of the, the things that, that if you're pro-abortion that you should admit too is that you are generally afraid of the truth about it because people who who love abortion who want to see more women be able to get abortions and actually perform get get abortions um they're not in favor of people knowing what really happens of people seeing an ultrasound of what's in there because they know that when the veil is pulled back and people see abortion for what it really is they reject it Mm -hmm. So the only way that they can succeed is by obfuscating the mm -hmm. truth of what it is. Hiding it. So when, whenever you're thinking about something that's a, you know, a complex political, social, cultural, economic issue, look at the side that's suppressing the, that's suppressing, um, the other side, that's suppressing speech and think like if their argument is so strong, if they're so right, why can't they win on the merits? Why do they have to attack and suppress? Yeah. Like, I have no problem talking to anybody that's pro-abortion and going all in on all the facts, always. I have, I literally do not have any... And they won't talk to you. People... people. Or are, they'll yell they'll, at you. They'll, they'll yell at you. They won't engage. I mean, there's not, some... Not all of them, absolutely. I, I'm obviously. talking about on the extreme ends. Yeah. Those are extremely pro-life and those are extremely pro-abortion. Go to one of these rallies... It's a very, very, very different environment when you're around pro-life people and when you're around pro-abortion people that are on the front, on the extreme, yeah. not as much people in the middle. But it's a very different environment, and we have no problem those who are, who think that the, uh, there should be equal protection at every point of life for all peoples. We have no problem with all of the facts laid bare, everything. Yeah. So, anything else? Think you said it well? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy understanding. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. All right. See you later.